Steve, welcome to the Commerce Talks uh, podcast. You're author of the uh, remarkable uh, retail. You're president and founder from Sageberry Consulting. Uh, you've been around in the e-commerce industry now for uh, more than two decades based on your LinkedIn profile. Today, we're going to talk about the first e-commerce e wave and uh, the second or third wave, uh, which is the marketplace wave, but we will dig into this um, later. So um, can you please sure. introduce yourself um, a bit to the audience um, and explain why are you so capable when it comes to e-commerce strategy? Well, I guess it remains to be seen if people will conclude I'm that capable, but uh, th thanks for having me on. Uh, I've spent most of my career in retail, uh, the first part of it on the senior leadership um, side of things. So I spent about 12 years at the formerly big American retailer, Sears, uh, in a variety of different positions. I started working on e-commerce in the mid to late 90s. And in fact, I was I got this new job at one point called the vice president of multi-channel integration because Sears was actually, despite all of its problems, Historically, Sears was one of the first companies to really focus on the idea that the customer is the channel and that uh, approaching commerce as separate was probably not the best idea. Maybe we'll talk about that some more. Then I moved to the Neiman Marcus Group, the North America's biggest luxury retailer in 2004 as the head of strategy. And over time, I picked up responsibilities for customer insight and for our multi-channel or omni-channel integration efforts. And then And for the last, uh, I guess it's about a dozen years now, I've been doing strategy and innovation, consulting, writing, speaking, and a, a number of things about how um, digital disruption is affecting the modern world of retail. Usually when I'm talking with um, MDs from companies that are around in retail now for three, four, five decades, they um, say they have been earlier um, in the e-commerce space, even than Amazon, but most of them never uh, never reached um, um, this kind of um, success like like Amazon. Was was there a similar behavior in, in, in a Sears environment or were, were, was the company super proud of being early in, uh, in e-commerce? I don't know if we were proud of it, but I think it was pretty, pretty clear, uh, obviously now with the benefit of hindsight, but, you know, in 97, 98, that kind of time frame, it was pretty clear that uh, online shopping was going to become an important part of, of retail, how quickly it was going to develop and how it affects certain categories, you know, because Amazon was very focused for many years on having picked a few categories like books and CDs um, where it was a very simple e-commerce model. At Sears, we weren't in that, in that business, so we didn't necessarily think about it the same way. But in terms of the ability to connect customers, uh, do digital marketing and transact online, it was pretty clear that it was going to be transformative Uh, so we placed a lot of bets pretty pretty early on and then really accelerated our efforts towards the latter part of, of 1990s. But I think we were among a number of companies that saw the potential and um, you know, invested behind it pretty aggressively. Most of them, and Sears was quite different in this regard, most of the big companies really set up their e-commerce operation as very separate from their physical retail operations. And that, that was not our attitude. Uh, and it, it turned out, you know, 
if you were a legacy retailer, that was the right way to think about it. And a lot of companies lost a lot of, of traction and market position because they didn't understand that the power of digital and, and got too focused on it as separate transaction channels. But it, it was a big effort and we just kept yeah, kept I growing. Th um, yeah, I think there was a time when e-commerce was perceived like as just as a channel. So I remember in the company I started my career in with the, with the auto group, um, it wasn't called e-commerce, e-commerce team, it was called new media. So and everything that was kind of right. new digital was like placed in the new media uh department but this uh, department had uh, lots of fight with the um, mail order department and with all the other departments that kind of said they own the customer they are the um, they are the main channel um the auto is actually one of the examples in europe that kind of was a success case in transforming from brick and mortar slash retail uh, um, dna in, in, into the e-commerce business are there success cases uh, um, that separated the e-commerce unit uh, from, from the rest of the legacy the business in the US that are still around? Uh, I'm hard pressed to think of some. I mean, I think there were, uh, to answer your question a little bit indirectly, I think in the early days, because there was such pushback and you know, we certainly experienced this at Sears, I experienced it later at Neiman Marcus, there was such pushback from kind of the core brick and mortar retail companies, you know, such resistance to getting aggressive about e-commerce because they saw it as competitive that many companies basically spun out their e-commerce operations separately. In Sears case, we put ours in a different part of our complex um, and, and gave them a certain amount of, of a runway to run. A number of companies, Walmart, Kohl's, Target, others put, put their operations in Silicon Valley for a while to try to not to have the mothership consume them. Um, so I think that was that was important to get speed early on and not let, you know, kind of that mothership consume you. Uh, but most of them, you know, ultimately brought it back to be to be more integrated. Um, some of them took too long, I would argue, to do that. I think the real success stories in kind of a weird way, I mean, aside from Amazon, obviously, were companies that were already mail order catalogs companies. So if you look at some of these brands that were already in the direct to consumer business, you know, sometimes I joke around that a lot of the newer brands act like they invented direct to consumer, but there were many very large businesses around the world that had successful mail order catalog businesses. So they already had the pick pack and ship fulfillment capabilities. Many of them like Williams Sonoma, Land's End, LL Bean, J Crew had already opened stores. And their orientation was, it was all one shopping experience. Um, instead of sending catalogs, they started to do online advertising. And instead of you faxing an order or calling it in, you can now order directly online. But for them, they really just evolved their business model to this new digital age. And e-commerce was a pretty easy transition for them. And they already understood that mail order catalogs, digital advertising drove people to the store. And people going to the store eventually were, you know, that was a good way to acquire customers for online or, or catalog. So I think the biggest success models in the late 90s, early 2000s, really were those companies that came out of that direct consumer background. And when I got to Neiman Marcus, which had, um, your listeners may or may not know, Neiman Marcus had a very big mail order catalog business. And, you know, recognized that e-commerce was going to be sort of the new version of a mail order catalog. 
And so it was actually pretty easy before I got there, but it was actually pretty easy, I think, for the board to say, we're going to have to invest behind this just to extend our mail order catalog business. And then, you know, it turned out it was all very reinforcing in terms of the brick and, brick and mortar. So I, I think, you know, for the most part, the legacy retailers that, that went after it as a separate thing um, got some early speed and learning, but most of them, I think, came to regret that decision. And some of them, frankly, are still, still working their way out of that, that siloed approach. So um, in, in Europe, if, especially in Germany, looking at the former mail order um, retailers like Otto, Quelle, Neckermann, most of them are not around anymore. And the best case, which was the Otto Group, which I mentioned before, only managed to, um, to get as much revenue in the e-commerce channel at, um, as, it was, uh, as it was making in the, um, uh, in the, uh, um, in the mail order channel. So there, there was never mm -hmm. a moment in time when those old retailers with uh, mail order DNA were able to participate, um, uh, participate on the um, e-commerce growth overall. So e e eBay was booming, Amazon was booming, many others were booming. And the mail order providers and mail order retailers only managed to, to, um, to convince the existing mail order customers to order on the website, not in the catalog anymore. Mm. So yeah. that, that I would throw as an argument here uh, into the discussion. So, and, and, and therefore I would say they did not manage the transformation well. They had like yeah. a, they had an advantage because yes, they were able to ship boxes over over uh, over some distance, but they never under they never understood the um, the sheer power of this transformation. They they yeah. mismanaged as at a channel. Yeah, I'm sure you can find some. Uh, I mean, there's certainly some brands. It's a little bit hard to parse out, but there are certainly some brands that had that direct to consumer catalog kind of history. I mean, I'll mention one, one company um, that's big in the US, uh, used to be quite big in the US, JCPenney. Uh, they were our more direct competitor when I was at Sears. They had a very substantial catalog business and it should have been relatively easy for them to harness the power of the internet mm. to, to not only protect the market share they had, but to really be an early leader. And they definitely, for reasons I don't totally understand, Uh, but the facts are they just never really saw the potential of that and did not invest. And they eventually shut down their catalog business and their e-commerce business uh, has suffered pretty massively for many years. They've been trying to play catch up. But if you go back to certainly the late 90s, early 2000s, they, they really missed an opportunity to, uh, to get a, a firm position there. One thing I will say that I think is um, it's been interesting and you think about the first wave You know, Amazon and others were very clever about picking categories that really didn't, for the most part, didn't require a physical store. You know, there was something you could understand pretty easily online and the unit economics supported pick, pack and ship kind of, kind of model where I saw a lot of resistance from traditional retailers and really embracing e-commerce aside from just the siloed thing and cultural issues and a bunch of other things that slowed people down was the way they thought about the profitability. And, you know, so several major retailers were very slow to invest in e-commerce because they didn't like the unit economics. And they basically said, well, we prefer to sell stuff through the store because the shipping costs are too high or the returns are too high. And there's some merit, I think, to thinking about it that way. 
But I think many of them didn't understand that this is really about a customer relationship and the lifetime value of the customer. You can't just focus on a transaction in uh, understanding what the strategic opportunity is. Not to mention the fact they lost a lot of market share. That, that hesitancy caused them to lose a lot of market share to, to folks that uh, Amazon, again, being sort of the more obvious one, but plenty of others that went after particular categories in a more focused way and maybe weren't burdened by some of that legacy thinking. But is there one success case which you could name based on the many names you just mentioned, uh, Lens and um, LLB and JCPenney and, and many, many, many more who managed this kind of transformation in order to participate um, on the overall online growth, though they outperformed uh, the rest of the pack? Because this question I, I got a lot in, in conferences, okay, who, who did it well? So who, who outperformed? Um, the other legacy player. What 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 can we what can we learn from this kind of transformational behavior? Is there like one or two particular brands that um, come to mind when it comes to um, win cases in e-commerce transformation? Yeah, there are a couple I would mention, particularly if we're, we're thinking about um, you know really this initial this initial wave. Um, the Williams Sonoma company, which owns. Um, People may know in several brands, the Williams Sonoma stores, um, West Elm, uh, Pottery Barn, and several others. They leveraged their kind of what I was talking about earlier. They really leveraged their history in mail order catalog. But because they had opened stores 20, 30 years ago, they took this really all channel view. Um, and so not only did they invest pretty aggressively in, in e commerce and digital marketing. But they really took this view that, and they didn't call it this way, this is something I talk about, but they, they really broke down the channels. They never established the silos that many legacy retailers did. And I think that has really led them to outperforming. Another brand which has had some greater, or two other brands I would say, which have had some challenges over the last decade for a couple of different reasons, but, but Nordstrom, the, the high-end department store here in the, in, North America. And my employer, Neiman Marcus, I think also invested very early. Well, I know they invested very early on in building out the, the transactional capabilities of e-commerce and also really started to leverage the power of digital marketing. Uh, I would give Nordstrom the edge there because they were much more focused on being channel agnostic and putting in some of the infrastructure um, in the early 2000s to make this, you know, whether you call it, I call it harmonized retail, you call it omni-channel, whatever. But like, for example, they were very early on in buy online, pick up in store, buy online, return to store. If you went into one of their stores and they didn't have the product in stock, it was very easy for you to order it uh, and have it delivered to your home or office. And so they really, you know, the so-called seamless integration They were very, very early in putting many of those capabilities that you know some retailers are still struggling to put into place today. And that really benefited them for a while. There's some other issues why their business hasn't performed better, but there was a period where um, you know, they were growing a share of wallet and their their penetration in e-commerce was very high. I mean, Neiman Marcus's e-commerce penetration has been, you know, we I think we got to 30% in like 2008, uh, which is really, really industry leading. Uh, and how much is it, is it today? You know well, I got a little bit, to, I, I don't know the exact answer because they're uh, a private company now, but it's close to 50%. Okay. 
Okay. No, transactional. I mean, the other, the other, I mean, I don't particularly like those numbers because we know that digital traffic drives a lot of store transaction and people account for revenue differently. Um, but I think they've said publicly 70 to 80% of all their brick and mortar sales are influenced by a digital channel, but the literal transactional volume is, is pretty close. It's in the 40 to 50% range for both Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom. Okay, and taking Nordstrom, Neiman Marcus, and maybe Williams and Nomar as success cases. So, what are the common denominators of success? Um, then, obviously, the one was um, understanding early the relevance of e-commerce and not um, splitting up the new media department, but rather um, embedded within the legacy um, uh, um, uh, um, um, setup, so to say. Are there more? Um, and online marketing, I said, early focus on online marketing. These are like three factors for um, for being more successful in the first wave um, than the than the other companies. Are there other um, success factors that come to mind? Well, a lot of it, I think, has to do with what you measure. So, so the Williams Sonoma companies and Nordstrom uh, Neiman's has changed. This was a battle there, but you know they didn't they didn't focus on things like e-commerce growth versus same store growth. They focused on customer-based metrics and trade area-based metrics. So, um, you know, so you are focusing on those things that say you're becoming more relevant with the customer as opposed to where you happen to count the sale. And, you know, even though it's difficult, and I, I'm not sure, and I don't entirely remember how they thought about marketing attribution, but they absolutely understood that it's you know, it, may, it makes no sense to think of e-commerce profitability as a, as a separate thing uh, because you spend a lot of money on digital marketing where the response is in brick and mortar. And brick and mortar is incredibly important as a marketing asset to drive your online business. And so, you know, I think now this so-called halo effect and attribution, you know, like that's all things that I think most people get today and explains why so many digitally native vertical brands are opening stores. Um, but, you know, they were very early on and really understanding that more at a conceptual level than probably a, a really fine level to be able to analyze it. But it made them, you know, made them avoid what so many other retailers spent a decade plus, um, you know, in some cases wasting time. You know, they, so many retailers put the burden of proof or put the burden on their so-called e-commerce e operations to make money. Uh, and they really thought about it fundamentally the wrong way. And they either underinvested in e-commerce or they invested in the wrong way. So when they, when both Nordstrom and Williams-Sonoma and we started to do it, Neiman saw the customer as the channel and understood the complementarity of digital and physical. You measure things in a different way. You put certain capabilities in place. I mean, the reason why some of these retailers put buy online, pick up in store in place early on was they understood that that was an incredible customer benefit. They didn't get hung up on the, oh, well, the stores are going to complain because they have more labor and they don't get credit for the sale. You know, I mean, it's just like once you become channel agnostic and see the customer as the channel, it, it changes what you measure and it changes what you focus on. And so they focused on these things, you know, 10 or 15 years early than a lot of other companies. Um, so let me th throw in like one observation. If you're comparing numbers from um, multi-channel slash omni-channel retailers or companies that 
um, were trying to leverage the brick and mortar appearance for driving more traffic towards the online shop. Um, those um, retailers usually grew way slower than pure play companies like Zappos, um, Azos, Zalando, about you, obviously, um, Amazon. So um, in hindsight, it um, would have been much smarter to get rid of the stores early and focus on the online channel. So the, because the, the burden of brick and mortar, mortar uh, um, uh, definitely was not leveraged by the ability of brick and mortar to create this kind of halo um, um, effect. And it's, I'm just talking numbers here, just comparing like statistics. Yeah. Um, is, is this true or is it a wrong interpretation of data? Oh, I think I, I think in general, it, it's quite wrong. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, when you're starting, I mean, for example, if you look at the incremental growth at just Neiman Marcus during that time in online compared to, say, Net-A-Porter or some of the other luxury brands that emerged, Neiman Marcus on a dollar value grew much more quickly than they did, number one. So percentages when you're starting from a low base you know, Neiman Marcus is a $4 billion company, you know, and added close to a billion dollars in e-commerce business over a relatively short amount of time. So some of it is just fun with math. Um, secondly, you know, you have this issue of, of just different capital structures and what investors look like. You know, investors were incredibly patient at one level of, with Zappos, which, you know, Zappos lost an incredible amount of money probably still on a product basis does not break even, but it's part of the Amazon flywheel. So that's, you know, that's a very different way of looking at value than a publicly traded legacy retailer is going to be. But I mean, I certainly think that, um, well, and then you have the point that it's absolutely true that many of these legacy brands that got very good at digital, and many of them didn't get good at digital fast enough, but but those that did, you have to account for the incremental uh, brick and mortar retail that that drove. So, you know, so I think it is a little bit of apples and oranges. I mean, Amazon is so much bigger than every other e-commerce player, um, you know, and the vast number of these disruptive brands are still quite small. So, you know, I think, I think the conclusion was there certainly were and are a number of really disruptive business models that um, have become or will become enduring brands. The jury is still out on many of them because they haven't proven themselves to be profitable or enduring brands. Um, but I think the lesson is, you know, particularly if you put Amazon to the side, because Amazon, you know, is not, you know, again, is not really a retailer. Um, they don't even though people still say they don't make money in retail, that's not exactly right. But, but retail is not their core business. You know, retail is the business that drives their advertising, that drives fulfillment, you know, that drives the other things they make money on. So that's a little bit, you know, it would have been cool if some other companies had maybe figured out how to do that. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole moment in time and investor class that allowed Amazon to kind of become this really, really, different kind of business. But I think uh, for sure, many legacy retailers should have pushed much more aggressively to transform their business. But I don't at all think the answer was to have thought of e-commerce as a separate thing. 
it was to have invested more aggressively because it would make your brand more relevant and to have shifted faster in adapting their whole supply chain and their whole store network to be much more responsive. But you know, that how you should do that varies depending upon you know, the market you're in, the geography, the sort of format you have. So um, I tried to turn it around into one of the um, denominators of success and then would say, so speed of adaption and like really spend, spending enough and uh, um, having enough press actually to invest a couple of years, not earning money, but invest into the channel would have been one common denominator of success um, also. So when you're, when you're looking at the companies that failed or went out of the market, they underestimated the whole um, change. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things I talk about a lot now in my keynotes is that I still think even, even if you point to some relative success stories among more traditional retailers, I still believe that most retailers are not transforming fast enough um, and profoundly enough uh, because, you know, we're in this era, maybe it sounds pretty obvious, but, you know, we've obviously seen a huge amount of digital disruption over the past 20, 25 years. Uh, but I, I still believe the pace of change is accelerating. And I think in general, most folks have a hard time. You know, the, the change is more exponential than it is linear in a lot of cases. And I think that's very hard for human beings to get their head around. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, there are some things not to get too into the weeds, but I mean, there are some factors with retail and sort of the protection of your physical assets and dynamics with landlords and cheap interest rate. Like there's a lot of things that kind of prevent disruption from happening as quickly as one might think, which is why I push back on this idea that physical retail is dead. I mean, there's a bunch of reasons why that's just silly, but there are some factors that keep some Uh, essentially insolvent retailers and insolvent shopping centers alive. Um, so you don't have quite this exponential progression that, that, that some might think. But nevertheless, I mean, a lot of the retailers, you know, they're, they're sort of one size. It's not even so much a digital versus physical thing is I think it's this idea that kind of a one size fits all model can be sufficiently adaptable to how consumers are, are shopping, you know, it's a lot easier to, for customers to, uh, you know, back in the days when you had to go to a mall and that was where most of the retailers were. And you went to these big department stores and they had this huge assortment. Well, now so much of that stuff, whether you buy it online or not, uh, which you certainly can, and that's very disruptive, but they're just more convenient alternatives for many of those products. You know, whether you go to a hypermarket or whether you go to a specialty store, you know, what is the reason to go travel, go up three floors to buy a very generic shirt or, or something like that. Like there's just so much more choice and there's so much more friction now. And so a lot of those formats are just fundamentally dead or dying, but there's a lot of forces that kind of keep that from collapsing as fast as possible. So I think if you're in the real estate business, you're in the technology business, you're in the retail business, you almost have to start with a blank sheet of paper and think about, okay, my brand is really more of a platform. There's a lot of ways I can reconfigure my assets, my products and services to be more responsive. And if I don't start moving in that direction, there's going to be a point at which 
a lot of my kind of legacy assets are going to be impossible to maintain. Uh, and I think that can happen much more quickly than, you know, even again, even with all the change we've seen, I think there, there's a lot more to come. Yeah, and, and using this uh, uh, bl blank sheet analogy um, on this sheet today, you would uh, definitely um, write down, become a marketplace. That's what we're seeing with many retailers now that want to add this kind of marketplace business um, to their existing business. Might it be offline or online, especially driven by the marketplace success of um, Amazon. And now I read on a weekly basis um, that um, retailer ABC wants to add marketplace capability to allow to allow other merchants to sell on his platform or her platform. Um, obviously, you're following the news also, and you read those mm -hmm. things. What's your take on this development? Well, so I think I think a, a lot of the marketplace efforts will not be successful to any degree. But it's very dependent upon what your brand is, is known for. And one of the things I often make a distinction about, I talk about in my book, is the distinction between buying and shopping. And while that's overly black and white, what I mean by buying, when we're in buying mode, that's a much more logical, kind of search-driven, get something off our list. You know, it's more of an errand or a task. When we're in shopping mode, there's more discovery, Uh, perhaps we're trying to put together a more elaborate solution, like maybe we're doing a home remodeling project or put an outfit together or, or something like that. And it's fundamentally more emotional. So if you're the sort of brand that is more of a shopping brand where you're known for curation and the role of your brand is editing things, a marketplace is not the primary thing you should be focused on. That's not why people are coming to you. Um, I'm not to say, to say that incrementally, like if you can get people to come to your site and you don't have something that is a logical add-on, you can get some incremental sales, but that is not important to your core promise to your customers. If you're on the buying side, which is more search-driven and assortment-driven, then that's a very different equation. So, so for Amazon or Walmart, uh, you know, a number of other players, marketplaces can be very, very helpful, but you have to design the customer journey for the customers to be able to get through that in, in an efficient way and have a reason to buy it from you. So to me, marketplaces are either leveraging inherent traffic you already have or to develop and improving your conversion, um, you know, or they are intrinsic to your business model, which is you're known for this amazing assortment. Um, so the thing is to really when you know, understand which side of the equation you're on. So just blindly chasing marketplaces, if you're more of a shopping brand, is likely to either be a distraction or a very minor opportunity. For others, you know, it's a great way to meet more customer needs efficiently, leverage some economics in terms of not owning inventory. You know, there's a lot of financial benefits, um, but you have to be very careful about who the customer is, what they're looking for you, and what is going to make you special. Um, so that to me is there's a fork in the road there. Okay, got it. So let's let's go through some examples here. I totally get your um, your view on buying versus shopping, but let's maybe um, deep dive into some examples. So I think the latest news I read about who becomes a marketplace was um, 
Macy's, uh, the department store uh, uh, right. retailer. Macy now wants to add market play, marketplace capability in Q3 or Q4 2022. Does that make sense? Well, so there's, <laughs> does it, does it make sense as being something that will fundamentally change their strategic trajectory? Absolutely not. Is it a nice incremental opportunity? Maybe. I mean, the issue again with marketplaces is, you know, when you think about why the customer comes to you in the first place, whether it's literally your store or whether it's your website, but marketplace is easier to understand with a website, you know, what is Macy's adding in their marketplace that either can't be gotten anywhere else, answer probably nothing of any consequence, or, you know, is it a nice logical add-on for the customer that's already, you know, going to the Macy's.com website and it just is a sensible thing for them to offer. Um, so the issue with Macy's is that overall they're losing relevance. So adding a marketplace is not gonna fundamentally change their relevance. And the degree for their marketplace to success, be successful means they've got to become more relevant because it's about leveraging that traffic. So that's for me, I mean, it's just very hard until a bunch of other things change at Macy's. The marketplace is a very incremental opportunity. It may be a very sensible thing to add a few million dollars in profits, um, but for it to be a game changer for Macy's, I, I can't see a world where that's possible. Okay, I will. I will. I, I like this. I like your answer. I, I throw a couple of more examples uh, uh, into your direction, if, if this is um, okay, so we can discuss um, them. So um, another more recent example is uh, Best Buy. Does it make sense or not? It makes more sense for Best Buy, um, partially because uh, even though their brand is relatively mature, I wouldn't say that they are the most remarkable brand on the planet. They fundamentally have a strong offering. Within their domain, they're generally known for selection. And so if they can extend their selection, you know, the so-called endless aisle and leverage their traffic, which I believe generally continues to grow, it's probably a solid opportunity uh, because it has to do with the nature of their brand and they are a strong destination online where I think people are looking for, um, you know, in many cases are looking for a broader assortment. I think the trick for a brand like Best Buy is and a lot of this, you know, just gets down to the execution and the site navigation is you don't want to get so focused on the marketplace stuff that your site becomes unshoppable and those core items that people go to you for, you know, it has to be much more of an add-on or complementary, or really easy to find via search. Okay, for Best Buy, it makes sense. Then um, there's another example, which I... I have a hard time to put it in either buying or shopping uh, in the shopping uh, box. One eight hundred flowers also announced to become a marketplace. Does this make sense for you? So, um, uh, I think it it can. Again, it's a little bit where you draw the boundaries. Um, you know, if you think about, and this is a little indirect way of asking your question, but I think one of the things that's really important, particularly as we move to a world where brands are more platforms rather than channels or formats, is thinking about well, what is what does your brand stand for, or what could it stand for? Now, one eight hundred flowers is unfortunately you know named flowers. So, <laughs> yes. but really, but really, they, I think they're in the business of helping you find a gift for a wide range of occasions. So, when you think about it that way, that opens up the aperture 
on more things you can do. So their core offering can be flowers delivered through florists. But if you're going to become the one-stop shop or trying to become the one-stop shop for gifting occasions, that opens up a possibility for more types of gifts. I don't know exactly where, you know, from an economic standpoint, for a customer standpoint, you can draw the line, but I can see how having that marketplace offering of saying, well, maybe you don't want to send flowers, you don't want to send balloons, but you want to send candy or you want to send whatever, you know, that they can leverage their position as a, as a gift site and evolve to where marketplace can really be potentially a much more significant um, part of their business. So I think it makes sense for them. I think it's just a question of where, you know, they probably have to evolve into, into it. Um, but I think it's an interesting opportunity in that case. Okay. And then my last example is um, another example from the um, fashion industry. It's urban outfitters. They also want to become a marketplace now. In your, in your um, buying versus shopping analysis, does it make sense? I think it's tougher for them. Um, again, it, it gets a little bit to the aspiration. If, if you've already got I mean, if you're staying true to your fashion point of view and your core type of items, and you are a curation brand, which is on the shopping side of the equation, I think you have to be very careful about extending too far. So again, I think there can be some decent incremental opportunities because you, know, you can help somebody complete an outfit or there's another item that they can get from you that makes some logical sense and you're not sending them off your site. But I think you just have to be very careful not to stretch too far in, in your offering. So is that really a marketplace if you're, if you're curating it that tightly in terms of add-on items, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know where you draw the line on what, I mean, I think they're using the term marketplace probably too loosely for what I think mm. they are actually going to do or will make sense for them. Uh, but I think the opportunities to really be a marketplace are pretty, pretty limited because their brand is quite focused on a particular set of customers and a particular sort of, um, set of purchase occasions i think one of the core um one of the core things that those marketplace projects wants to achieve is that um, the retailers eventually want uh, want to get rid of the inventory risk they want to get more into a service revenue model where they are able to sell advertising services or financial services or logistics services to um, the vendors. Um, and again, that's a very different business model compared to where they're come from where they're coming from. Um, usually they just um, selected merchandise from uh, from from some manufacturers, ordered it, paid it, uh, and put it on their on their warehouse. Is, is it a smart motivation to have this kind of platform economy approach um, in your mind when to when you start your marketplace project, or should you focus on something um, different? Well, you know, I think it really depends on the sort of brand you are and why, why customers seek you out and are loyal to you. If, if the essence of what differentiates you is both your, you know, the story of your brand. So using the anthropology example, I think they're clearly not for everybody. They have a very specific point of view. Doesn't mean it can't be stretched a bit. But if customers are coming to you because of your, your uh, editorial point of view, product quality, sourcing, all those kinds of things, I think you have to, you have to keep those um, at the heart of, of your business model and find some interesting things around the edges. So I don't see in that sort of case where it's really about a deep relationship with the customer that a big shift 
towards uh, getting paid for fulfillment or, or things like that is, is likely to make sense. For other brands with more diverse capabilities and wider customers, I think it makes more sense. The thing I think is, you know, and I don't know, I mean, I haven't seen good, good data on this. Um, it's been more kind of anecdotal. But the more, you know, you go to drop shipping, which has been something that's been around for a long time as a way of extending assortment, but, you know, you get more into kind of these fulfillment software as a service, brand as a service kind of models. Um, you definitely expand your assortment and you definitely can have some positive financial dynamics, but you run into this issue where customers are getting products in, you know, a number of different boxes is the whole environmental thing there, which I think needs to get more attention. It's harder for you to maintain your brand image and control of the whole customer experience. Not impossible, but harder. And so I think it's a little bit of a slippery slope for some brands, you know, that are maybe chasing efficiency or some incremental dollars when, um, you know, they got to be careful to really stick to their core, their core business, because, you know, you can water down what there's the danger. That's the thing I worry about is it sort of water down what really makes you special because you sort of chase the, what look to be positive financial dynamics. But, um, you know, it's, I, I know I, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a complaint of mine sometimes that I think, you know, you get these sort of bright, shiny objects that every, you know, suddenly everybody's got to have an NFT and everybody's taking cryptocurrency and everybody's experimenting with the metaverse. Like, you know, these, these are things that are all worth exploring. I'm not suggesting that, that they won't become important, but I do sometimes feel like some of these brands, because it's the hot thing, they drop it into an investor presentation and, you know, whether it's really thought out and whether there's a real strategy or is it just sort of a probe, um, you know, that I think in a lot of cases remains to be seen. Okay. And my last question is, um, um, and, and we haven't talked about this uh, before, though you have, had no time to prepare it. So um, assume uh, you're going to be the Amazon CEO. What's the main initi initiatives you would drive in order to um, increase revenue or customer retention or technology adoptions or whatever is important um, mm -hmm. to you? Well, I think um, one of the things that is really interesting with Amazon right now is there are a lot of categories that they are still quite underpenetrated in when you look at fashion apparel, groceries, home improvement, you can go down the list of major retail categories, not even getting into services and, and other things. And, um, you know, so the question is, how can they really get accelerate? One of the questions I think for them to really continue to drive revenue forward is how do they become more important in some of these historically underdeveloped ca um, categories? One of the answers, of course, is they are investing more in physical retail because one of the reasons it's this buying versus shopping thing. One, you know, e-commerce is really good at the buying side, generally not so good in most places on the shopping side. So some of the answer for Amazon is going to be um, what they're doing um, with their Amazon Fresh stores and grocery, what they're starting to experiment with in fashion apparel, with their um, Amazon Style store, which is, I think, kind of an oxymoron to think of Amazon and style. But, you know, but some of it will be experimenting with some form of physical retail, but really putting a strong uh, omni-channel harmonized, you know, tech, tech layer onto it uh, in the way that they can. So I think that's a big thrust for them. One of the things that Amazon needs to get better at is the more emotional side of shopping. Uh, you know, they, they take a very efficiency 
sort of approach feels like a you know a company that is run by a bunch of engineers not a bunch of anthropologists or, or people and i think for them to uh make headway in some of these underpenetrated categories they have to understand a little bit more of the emotional side and and marry tech you know kind of marry art and science to do better so some of that can be accomplished online i think some of it will be accomplished in what they do next with some of their brick and mortar investments how, how many times per year are you ordering on amazon me personally yes <laughs> oh 50 probably 50. so once a week or i mean so. you know, a lot a lot <laughs> a lot no i'm a huge i'm a huge amazon customer but there's also lots of things that i don't even think you know there's a lot of things where um, and I think data, just not my sample of one, but data, you know, Amazon is, is fantastic at, at the buying side, right? And they are in so many categories and they've become so good at getting things to you efficiently that, um, and you know, that's a real ad advantage. I mean, one other thing I guess I could mention is I think, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the economics for the industry pan out, but, but next day, and same-day delivery in many countries is kind of becoming table stakes, at least for a wide variety of products. And Amazon has built, at least in the States, they have built this infrastructure where they have a, just a huge number of products that can be delivered same day or next day. Almost none of their competition has that capacity unless they, cho they choose to fulfill out of stores. And that's a very high cost way of doing it. And so I think, you know, Amazon's almost got this lock, you know, where they're driving this new requirement of having so many products available same day, next day. And they've got, they have the power. I mean, they've got the overall economics, which, you know, they don't care so much if they make money on selling you groceries because they're going to monetize that through their advertising network, right? So they've got a whole different way of making money with their so-called flywheel. And so it's almost to me like a little bit of a trap where like they're luring everybody to chase them to up the ante on same day and next day. But, but the smaller competitors have terrible economics, even some of the bigger supermarkets and the Walmarts of the world, you know, they, they've got a long way to have a cost efficient way of, of doing that. And so in a way, like the, the more evil way of thinking about it is Amazon's got such an advantage and such a different model for how it makes money and its cash cycle that pushing on that, I think, ultimately, short of getting in trouble with, you know, the, the federal powers for monopoly <laughs> exploitation or something, but, but pushing on that advantage, I think, um, really gives them an ability to continue to steal market share and frankly, deleverage the economics of some of their most powerful competitors. And, you know, some, some folks are not going to be able to keep chasing them in the same way they have, they're going to have to go about it in a different way. So, I mean, the Amazon flywheel is just so, I mean, it's an obvious thing to say, but, you know, but it's so impressive in terms of what they've done from the supply chain side and monetizing the traffic. And at the same time, now that they're starting to move more aggressively into categories like physical grocery, and, you know, we'll see what happens with, with apparel. I mean, that's a whole other area where, um, you know, it's almost untouched ground for them really at this point. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, that was super interesting. 
So, um, Steve, I'm, I'm I'm really happy um, for for you being in this in this podcast. Um, maybe one last question: If you're looking forward to 2022, is there anything you're particularly interested uh, in when it comes to retail and any retail innovation? Have you already bought some uh, land in the metaverse to to build a brick and mortar <laughs> uh, metaverse retailer, for example? Well, I'm definitely. Um, I mean, I just love to see the different experiments that people are doing and as much as i sometimes you know say that there's a lot of hype associated with some of these experiments i mean they're fun to watch and i think most retailers need to be much more aggressively testing things mm -hmm. whether it'll turn out you know i don't i don't think the metaverse for example is going to be a big thing in 2022 but um retailers should be paying attention to to what the metaverse can mean and you know nfts and all sorts of you know there's lots of live streaming i mean there's all sorts of things that maybe haven't quite caught on uh, to a large degree that might. So you have to be aggressively, aggressively testing. I'm interested that the one thing I'm interested in, which is probably a whole other topic is, uh, you know, I alluded to earlier that there's so many retailers, traditional retailers have kind of a one size fits all approach to the market. You know, they have one core store format. And I think, you know, some of those kind of mothership flagship stores are going to have to either become much more special to be able to drive traffic to them. But I think there are other ways of doing smaller formats, whether they're more specialty stores that focus on a particular customer or purchase occasion or omni-channel service only kind of stores, you know, small locations that are meant to be uh, places where you can return product or pick up product. So, you know, I think, I think it's the, it gets back to this idea of kind of a blank sheet of, you know, don't assume that the the model that you have that has brought you success over these years is necessarily going to be the one that carries you forward to the future. You know, if you had to start it all over again, particularly when you think about your brick and mortar assets, how would you reconfigure your market position? You know, recognizing that e-commerce is going to continue to grow, digitally influenced sales is going to continue to grow. I mean, all that's going to happen, but are you happy with your supply chain fulfillment assets? Are you happy with your your customer facing asset, or is there a way to remix it in an interesting way? Now that will take a number of years because of leases and things like that. Some of the stuff we talked about later, that like that's a harder thing to do quickly, but I think retailers should be experimenting with different formats that maybe serve a, a very uh, single role in a very deep way, or perhaps have kind of a hybrid, a hybrid role, which is very different than the way they've done the market in the, in the past. Steve, thank you, and hope we have you in the Thank podcast you. again anytime soon. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.